847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this first episode of the new year, I'd like to welcome everyone to 2019. Uh, I hope everyone enjoyed a great holiday season, uh, wherever you are, and also a great New Year's, and that 2019 is off to a stellar start so far. So after a short hiatus for the podcast, um, I'm back with new episodes, uh, some of which, uh, like I mentioned, will be interviews that I've got lined up, along with some other fun topics, or at least topics that I think are fun and interesting. In this episode, my focus will be on fan-favorite composer Alan Silvestri. Uh, by way of my recurring segment that I call Listening To, uh, as it will spotlight a specific composer. As most regular listeners are aware of, I sort of enjoy figuring out what are the defining features of the notable composers of movie and TV music, uh, such as what are the aspects that we can all listen for, what are you know, whether it be certain instruments or a musical structure, or maybe just how they approach a project that is unique to them. We're listening now to the main title cue from Back to the Future 2, directed by Robert Zemeckis, released in 1989, with music composed by Alan Silvestri. So Alan Silvestri has been an impressive, popular, and prolific artist in film and TV music for more than three decades, uh, emerging as a, as a newcomer around the same time uh, as Danny Elfman and James Horner, Michael Kamen, and Hans Zimmer did all around the early to mid-80s. Uh, he's incredibly versatile in range, providing music for pretty much every genre that you can think of, from science fiction to action, comedies, uh, both of the romantic and the zany variety, uh, dramas, animation, uh, but I'd say Silvestri is probably best known for his longtime collaboration with director Robert Zemeckis. Uh, he's been composing for all of his projects including audience favorites and critical successes uh, such as the Back to the Future series, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, uh, Forrest Gump, Contact, and The Polar Express, uh, for example. His style is often melodic, energetic, um, and very emotionally direct. Uh, These are musical qualities that I also attribute to the late great composer Elmer Bernstein, uh, who I covered in an episode of the podcast last year. I think that while their respective sounds are different, uh, these qualities are abundant in their music. Uh, There is a a real hard-on-sleeve quality to Sylvester's music that I find similar to Bernstein's, that the emotional component often displayed front and center, um, you know, without without much subterfuge uh, to the music. 
Alan Silvestri was born in New York City in 1950 and raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, and had musical aspirations from very early on. Despite uh, what he described as growing up in a family that was decidedly non-musical and for motivations that are a mystery to Silvestri himself, he took to studying drums at a young age, uh, and in addition, he learned saxophone and clarinet. In an interview with uh, Christian Desjardins for the book called Inside Film Music, Composers Speak, published in 2006, um, Alan Sylvester related that uh, being a bebop guitarist was his initial dream. Um, following high school, he pursued further studies at Berkeley School in Boston, um, but pretty soon, however, Sylvester decided to put his talents into practice, um, and this was done by moving to Los Angeles and touring as a guitarist with the band Wayne Cochran and the CC Riders. Uh, the time spent in the pop music world, uh, playing both drums and guitar and arranging songs, uh, really provided him with a background uh, similar to what we find in a few other notable film composers, such as John Barry, Danny Elfman, and Hans Zimmer, um, who all had entire careers in pop, jazz, or alternative music prior to migrating over to composing film and TV music. Their training uh, could be considered more on the job and in the trenches than in formal settings. And this background, this specific background, I think is evident in Silvestri's early scores um, and in later projects that required a more modern vibe. Um, Silvestri's even noted in that aforementioned interview that I, that I spoke of that he loves incorporating elements outside the standard orchestral setup into his scores. Now, his first film score occurred in 1972 with a movie called The Doberman Gang, which apparently has a plot involving a pack of Dobermans uh, being trained to rob a bank. Why is this movie not more famous? I have no idea. Uh, anyway, this led to uh, TV work a few years later. Uh, there were a few other film projects as well. Um, but uh, as far as TV work, he, uh, he did some episodes of Starsky and Hutch. And then this led to Silvestri's first real major career coup, uh, which was composing episode scores for that classic slice of 70s TV cheese, uh, the motorcycle cop show Chips, which ran from 1977 to 1983 and starred Eric Estrada and Larry Wilcox as California Highway Patrol officers Ponch and John. Admittedly, any fondness for the show is really completely derived from whether or not you were exposed to it as a kid, uh, which I was for sure. I definitely grew up watching Chips. Um, so, so you know, have to sort of forgive me for this indulgence here. But uh, Chips features a really catchy theme composed by John Parker. Uh, and its first season had more of a conventional dramatic TV scores um, by a variety of composers, um, including Nelson Riddle. Um, However, producer uh, Cy Shermack, uh, he came on and retooled the show a bit for the second season, and he really wanted to highlight aspects of the late 70s pop culture, uh, including the sound of disco, and thus Alan Silvestri was hired to bring this about. Um, his first task was to provide a new arrangement of John Parker's theme for season two, and now it's pretty much the most familiar as it was used for the rest of the series. So here is uh, the theme from Chips. Uh, this is as arranged by Alan Silvestri uh, for the second season.
So that kick drum that opens up the uh, that his arrangement of the main title for Chips pretty much becomes the beating heart of the show from here on out. Um, if you don't hear the kick drum, it just isn't a Silvestri score for for Chips. <laughs> uh, but Silvestri's approach for scoring each episode was actually a bit unconventional uh, at the time, as he really embraced disco in the music. Um, he composed a fresh tune for each episode. He would actually rarely refer back to the uh, John Parker theme in his episode scores. It was more about like, here's a new melody for this new episode. Um, he was orchestrating it all himself, and his cues were really featured front and center, primarily for the various car chases and outdoor sports sequences of the show, and they kind of groove and jam along throughout these sequences, sometimes not even really like always hitting you know the exact um, beats of the uh, of the sequence um, his his music for chips you know is of course diametrically opposed to what he is now best loved for um, and in fact uh, it could probably cause oral whiplash for any fans who only know his big orchestral scores like back to the future and Forrest Gump and the Polar Express however for comparison I kind of feel like this is could be considered in the same fashion as how, those uh, early scores of John Williams uh, were steeped in 1960s pop and jazz trends, and yet Williams' melodic gift uh, was on full display. I think it's the same thing here with Silvestri, in that, yes, these chip scores were steeped in the trend, the pop trend of the time, but uh, Silvestri's gift for melody um, is on display in each of his episode scores with these, you know, um, themes that are, you know, kind of become these earworms. Um, and, uh, really indelible, you know, and sometimes, you know, really memorable, uh, and, uh, I happen to love his music for the show, but again, I did grow up with it, so. Here's some of the music that he composed for, uh, a season three episode of Chips titled Roller Disco. So I wanted to give you an example of, uh, one of his episode scores in addition to that, uh, the title theme that we'd heard his arrangement of. So, again, here's music from season three episode of Chips titled Roller Disco. Anyone intrigued by that cue? The label Filmscore Monthly released three volumes of Sylvester's music from Chips, uh, and they're all really uh, pretty fun albums. 
Uh, in fact, uh, one of them, uh, one of the albums, actually, interestingly enough, has vocals for some of the episodes. It was, I guess, an experiment they had tried, I think, in season four, um, to actually have vocals along with this, the, uh, with his music, and they they just took the vocals out. They didn't actually show in the episodes, which is pretty interesting to learn. So anyway, it was this highly rhythmic uh, approach that brought him to the attention of Robert Zemeckis, uh, who in 1984 was uh, deep in post-production on his movie Romancing the Stone, uh, a South American set uh, romantic adventure starring Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner. Now, Zemeckis, um, who uh, he asked Alan Silvestri, uh, who had been referred to him by a few other people, um, Zemeckis asked Silvestri to submit a demo, a demo cue for one specific chase sequence in the movie. Um, now, according to an interview in that same book that I mentioned, the uh, Inside Film Music um, book, Silvestri mentioned that he recently had invested in a lot of electronic and synth equipment at that time, such as the Yamaha DX7 and uh, some drum machines which all helped greatly in this instance, since this was a time before mock-ups, which are really commonplace uh, now. Most of the composers have the equipment to uh, do mock-ups for directors who uh, require them. So uh, Silvestri's three-minute demo cue for the the Gorge uh, chase uh, sequence in the film really impressed Zemeckis and producer Michael Douglas enough to get him hired to do the full score. So you can hear, um, what I'm going to do is play a cue, you can hear the groove-based rhythmic elements from his chip scores are still present, um, but it's, again, it's a few years after the disco, um, but it's also now along with a larger orchestra uh, with these rapid, brassy accents and then a great melody kind of surfing on top of all of that. Um, it's a real crossroads uh, between his early years into the more symphonic era to follow. So here's the cue called Mounties from 1984's Romancing the Stone. Romancing the Stone was a real surprise winner at the box office, uh, coming in right below Footloose as the eighth top-grossing movie of 1984. 
its success uh, allowed Robert Zemeckis, along with his writing partner Bob Gale, the clout to finally make the time travel movie that he had been trying to sell to Hollywood uh, even before Romancing the Stone. And this would all come to pass in the very next year, 1985, as the uh, pop culture phenomenon that is Back to the Future, starring Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. So Robert Zemeckis brought along Alan Silvestri to provide the music as their collaboration on Romancing the Stone proved to be the the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Um, Now, usually Back to the Future is counted as Silvestri's big symphonic introduction to audiences and movie music fans alike. However, there was a movie which he scored between Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future that wound up as sort of a dry run in this vein for him, a way to compose for a large symphony orchestra. And this would be Fandango, uh, directed by Kevin Reynolds and starring Kevin Costner, uh, the two of whom would actually join join forces later on uh, in 1991 in the mega-hit Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Silvestri recorded his score for Fandango in June of 1984, um, and his music also incorporates some electronic tonalities and acoustic guitar elements, but it's it's the large orchestral action uh, cues for the train and the plane sequences that showcase many of the trademarks that fans associate with his style now. Um, Unfortunately, half of his score as composed wasn't even used in the finished film. It was either dropped or replaced uh, with with, uh, concert music by Shostakovich, actually. Um, The movie uh, was released in early 1985. Uh, So Back to the Future did wind up as the de facto introduction of Silvestri's big orchestral sound, since so much of the music he wrote for Fandango wasn't even used. So here's the cue, The Train, from Fandango, and see if you can pick up some of those um, trademarks that I noted about his style, see if you can kind of hear how it's sort of a dry run for Back to the Future. it's fascinating how much of the Silvestri sonic stamp uh, was present right from the start uh, that there is the the rhythmic energy the per, the percussiveness uh, the charging brass and the flurry of woodwinds uh, string and harp glissandos um, and that particular sort of bright clarity that you can hear in his music um, all it's really missing is the iconic theme that would arrive in the following year bringing us to back to the future So according to Alan Silvestri, um, Robert Zemeckis had communicated 
uh, to him only that his music for Back to the Future be quote-unquote big. As uh, Zemeckis thought that visually his movie was a bit small scale in scope, uh, so he really wanted the music to kind of lend it something a bit more expansive. So Sylvester responded with a score that is still treasured and fondly remembered today. Uh, it's an integral part of the experience of the of the movie of, of watching Back to the Future, along with the contrasting pop songs from the '50s and the '80s, which of course was also um, a huge calling card for the movie, um, thanks to Huey Lewis in the News um, and Power Love and Back in Time. So Sylvester's score, um, I think it's endearing, it's adventurous, it's likable in all the same ways as the character of Marty McFly, uh, with a main theme that's flexible enough to be heard in major and minor keys, and even in really short statements, and you still kind of get the flavor of it. Uh, So here's the skateboard chase from 1985's Back to the Future. Interestingly enough, Alan Silvestri initially scored much of Back to the Future during May of 1985, um, but due to how impressed producer Steven Spielberg and director Robert Zemeckis were with his main theme, they asked him to revise um, those cues he recorded so that the theme could be featured more often. Uh, So the revised cues were then recorded in June, um, and actually... Uh, the originals can be heard on the two CD edition of the score from Entrada Records. Um, you know, most of these were sometimes just, you know, instrumental changes, just in terms of like one cue having muted uh, trombones, another one not. But there are some more uh, extreme differences, again, as far as like uh, cues that are uh, heavier sounding or they don't feature the Back to the Future theme as often. Um, so, for example, since we just heard the film version of the skateboard chase cue, um, here's Alan Silvestri's original version of that same cue. Uh, note that it opens with more lower brass than what's heard in the in the film version. So again, this is Alan Silvestri's original version of the skateboard chase from Back to the Future.
So from here on, Alan Silvestri's profile as an A-list film composer was off and running, with his recurring collaborations with director Robert Zemeckis really acting as the spine of his career. Uh, Just for some context, though, it was in the same year as Back to the Future that composer Danny Elfman began his ongoing collaboration with director Tim Burton with Pee-wee's Big Adventure in 1985. Now, while Alan Silvestri had, of course, as we had heard, been working in TV and film prior to working with uh, Robert Zemeckis, I find it interesting to compare both Silvestri and Elfman with this being the real launching point for both of them, Um, seeing as how their respective partnerships with Robert Zemeckis and Tim Burton both began around the same time, they continue to this day, and are the backbone of their respective careers. Uh, They each achieve their high profile as film composers due to these specific partnerships kind of right at the start. Um, So Alan Silvestri quickly began scoring three to four films each year, um, all different genres, and he even composed several all-electronic scores, um, fitting into the trends of the time, but also his, I think his experiences uh, kind of prepared him for that. Um, This included films such as Cat's Eye and Clan of the Cave Bear, Uh, Flight of the Navigator, um, all further demonstrating his range. One example of this all-electronic approach is the action flick The Delta Force from 1986, directed by Mannheim Golan and starring Chuck Norris. So here's Alan Silvestri's really propulsive main theme for The Delta Force. can hear how his experiences with pop arrangements and pop instrumentation both on tour in the 1970s and in his Chips episode scores really helped prepare Silvestri for these kinds of non-traditional, more trendy requirements in the film scoring world. Even if one considers this kind of sound pretty dated by now, it still makes for a pretty fun listen, though. Um, Afterwards, dramas like No Mercy with Richard Gere um, and also comedies such as Outrageous Fortune uh, starring Bette Midler, Critical Condition starring Richard Pryor and Overboard with Goldie Hawn uh, brought more diversity to his resume. Uh, These comedy scores often mixing orchestral and electronic elements together in sort of a lighthearted fashion. 
you know, it's interesting. Comedies have really been one of the mainstays throughout Silvestri's career um, with the, the high energy and the, the bright melodic traits of his style really seeming to, to fit well for that genre. Uh, so here's an example of that. Uh, this is a, a cue from Outrageous Fortune uh, from 1987. It's a cue called Duels. In the same year as Outrageous Fortune, Alan Silvestri made his orchestral mark in the action genre when asked by director John McTiernan to score his brawny jungle epic Predator, uh, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and a dreadlocked alien hunter. It's a score that could have just been perfunctory, uh, but Silvestri really brought a great deal of invention uh, to it, uh, from melodically, rhythmically, and in, and, uh, in its instrumental colors. Um, he opens and closes the movie with this rousing yet really determined military march, um, in addition to adding in a reflective uh, solo trumpet theme uh, that uh, underscores some of the characters mourning their lost comrades, uh, which occurs a few times in the movie. And there's also some coiling sinister motifs for the Predator itself, um, some big swelling orchestral chords, um, and some real kinetic action set pieces that I think... Um, you know, helped make his mark in the genre um, and often became a temp track staple. I think it often kind of got referred to and, and copied a bit. Uh, it's long been a favorite score of mine uh, and for many years was never available on disc. It's a sad fact that was finally rectified by some recent special edition CD releases uh, from labels such as Entrada Records and Verez Saraband. So here's that military march that I mentioned. This is from the main title of Predator from 1987.
I find that uh, the score for Predator is actually a pretty nimble score for an action movie. Um, and Alan Silvestri mixes in uh, some really uh, fascinating percussive and electronic colors into the orchestra. But it never feels heavy or weighted down. Uh, and there's a real clarity uh, where you can hear all the sections of the orchestra, uh, which is just something I wanted to mention because uh, I, I wanted to contrast it with some later examples of Silvestri's action scores. But moving forward a bit, the next score that I want to spotlight, it's another major milestone in his career. Um, this is 1988's Who Framed Roger Rabbit, the third collaboration between Alan Silvestri and Robert Zemeckis, not counting their episode of the TV series Amazing Stories. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, it's a fantasy film set in Hollywood of the 1940s. It's a Hollywood that's populated by both humans and cartoon characters living together. Um, and stars Bob Hoskins as a PI investigating a murder committed by one of those quote-unquote tunes. Uh, this was another big commercial and critical success for Robert Zemeckis and required a hugely diverse score from Silvestri, um, including some rapid-fire music in the style of a famed, uh, famed uh, Looney Tunes composer Carl Stalling. There's some uh, jazz and blues sets. Uh, there's vocal arrangements of some traditional numbers and classical pieces like the Hungarian Rhapsody, and also some more traditional uh, bad guy uh, music, some suspense, suspense and action music. Um, so, so it really is is a score that just has a wealth of, of material. Um, and uh, here's an example of the jazz aspect to the score. Um, this is in the track Eddie's Theme uh, from the soundtrack album that was released. Uh, so again, this is from Who Framed Roger Rabbit in 1988. Frame Roger Rabbit was uh, an extensive and complicated production uh, due to incorporating the live action actors and sets with the uh, animated uh, elements. And uh, Sylvester was actually writing music two years before it was even released. Um, according to a 1988 interview with Randall Larson, um, Alan Silvestri was on board mainly for the source cues initially uh, so that they could sync up to the animated uh, characters and then beginning to write the score proper in December of 1987. Um, Silvestri noted that he scored both the human and the animated characters in the same fashion, um, not traditional for one and cartoony for the other. Um, 
other than the opening animated prologue, which, as I noted, kind of follows more of the Carl Stalling model of music matching each action that you see. Um, so Sylvester really wanted to treat every everyone on screen in the same fashion as far as the regular story goes. Um, Sylvester also mentions how he incorporated a five-piece jazz ensemble within the London Symphony Orchestra with, quote-unquote, jazz segued in and out of the out-and-out orchestral scoring, unquote. And this is something that you can hear in this chase cue called The Getaway. Uh, Again, this is from Who Framed Roger Rabbit from 1988. Following on from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, in 1989, Alan Silvestri was asked by director James Cameron to score his intense underwater science fiction movie, The Abyss, starring Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Now, this provided Silvestri the opportunity to write for a mixed choir in addition to the orchestra, and as this was new for his scoring palette, it allowed him to add another notch to his metaphorical composing belt as he handled it marvelously, incorporating the choir and the orchestra. So, as with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, his music for The Abyss is actually very diverse in textures and tone. Um, Here, the score shifts from being ethereal, uh, rapturous at times. Uh, There are sequences for suspenseful, moody electronics and several fierce uh, action cues. Uh, It's a real highlight of this early era of Sylvester's career, I think, and it's a a grand way for him to close out the 1980s, really. Uh, And he survived working with James Cameron, which is no small feat. So here is a part of the cue, Bud on the Ledge from The Abyss.
So that was a bit of the cue called Bud on the Ledge. From The Abyss in 1989, it's a cue from later in the movie um, when Ed Harris's character uh, sort of has this underwater unexpected adventure. Uh, so I wanted to also point out the time frame of where we're at in Alan Silvestri's career at this point. Um, as uh, I was realizing, there's a 10-year difference between that roller disco episode of Chips that I played earlier and this gorgeous cue we just heard from The Abyss. So it kind of goes to show you a lot can happen in 10 years' time. Also, as is typical for uh, James Cameron, the uh, notoriously demanding director uh, wound up splicing and dicing the cues that Silvestri composed for The Abyss, um, reusing or uh, looping a few of them uh, several times during the course of the movie, and also moving cues around from where they were originally intended and so forth. Um, essentially, as with James Horner's score for Aliens in 1986, when you watch the movie itself, many of the music cues you hear are really not how and where the composer originally intended. Um, regardless, The Abyss is a great score, uh, along with his work for the second Back to the Future film um, in that same year. Now, 1990 uh, ended up as what could be considered the year of the sequel for Alan Silvestri, um, and also further expanded his musical palette, um, this time with two westerns, Young Guns 2 and Back to the Future 3, and then also Predator 2. Uh, the latter incorporates a whole battery of South American percussion into the score um, as Silvestri kind of reworks uh, some of the material he wrote for the original Predator. Um, now, Young Guns 2, directed by Jeff Murphy and starring Emilio Estevez and Kiefer Sutherland, is a sequel to the 1988 original about Billy the Kid, which incidentally Silvestri didn't score. Um, in terms of music for Young Guns 2, though, John Bon Jovi's song Blaze of Glory pretty much garnered all the attention at the time, um, as well as Oscar and Golden Globe nominations, actually, um, and album releases. Uh, Silvestri's music was pretty much unavailable on disc uh, for the most part until around 20 years later, uh, thanks to Entrada Records. So for many of us longtime fans of Silvestri's music, we really didn't get to hear the full score apart from the movie for a couple decades. Um, his music here is not only orchestral and dynamic, um, but interestingly also includes more pop and rock elements um, in it with spotlights for both acoustic and electric guitar and a drum set to kind of give you a backbeat for several cues. And this is all capped off with a big male choir to sort of make this score especially brawny. Uh, his two main themes for the movie are really quite flexible, both of them. Um, one is a bit more fate fateful and reflective, and a bit more downtrodden. And then the second theme is much more energetic. Uh, the latter is heard here in the cue Scar. So again, this is from Young Guns 2 in 1990. <laughs>
So with these rock elements in the Young Guns 2 score, it not only helps better blend the score in with John Bon Jovi's vocal track, but you can also trace a line from Silvestri's earlier arrangement and performance days in the 1970s through disco with chips, and then the 80s electronics heard in scores like the Delta Force. Um, Throughout the 1980s, Silvestri had really proven himself particularly talented in this arena of blending the traditional and the contemporary together um, in his scores. It's interesting to note also that Silvestri's use of the all-male choir here in Young Guns 2, um, as it ended up becoming a staple of Hans Zimmer's palette for his action scores a few years later, starting with Crimson Tide and others. Um, I can't imagine that Young Guns 2 was a conscious influence, but it's still interesting um, that Silvestri kind of used it a few years before uh, before Zimmer did. So uh, I mentioned that he scored uh, two westerns in the same year, and the second was the third and final Back to the Future film, again directed by Robert Zemeckis. Now, Silvestri here adopted the more traditional hallmarks of a classic score for the Western genre, uh, with racing strings and blazing brass, um, more in the vein of uh, Jerome Moross's music for the big country and Alfred Newman's How the West Was Won, um, whereas Young Guns 2, with some of its um, pop and rock elements, it had, you know, more of that contemporary feel, and you can almost make a comparison to a Morricone spaghetti Western sort of Uh, vibe. But uh, as far as Back to the Future 3, just for some context, here's the overture from Alfred Newman's How the West Was Won. So you can kind of get an idea of the template that was set. Uh, So for anyone who who wasn't aware of this score, but this was kind of the template that was set for the the classic sound of Western genre. And this is sort of an influence on uh, Silvestri's music for Back to the Future 3. So again, this is uh, some of the overture from Alfred Newman's How the West Was Won. course i would be remiss if i didn't uh make a mention of for the fans who know the movie romance in the stone really well they will also recall that this that this music from how the west was won was used in the opening prologue sequence of that movie that uh, sort of uh that was dramatizing um the the novel that uh, the character joan wilder was uh, was writing uh but here is alan Silvestri's new theme for back to the future 3 which accompanied the uh characters marty mcfly and doc brown and their adventures in the old west um, and it's a it's a theme that's expertly folded in with the original theme for the series. So here's a bit. This is kind of the best presentation of that Western theme. It's from the end credits for Back to the Future 3.
So as the 90s progressed, Silvestri's slate uh, was pretty much dominated mainly by uh, two genres, comedies and action. Um, this included comedies such as Soap Dish, Father of the Bride, and Grumpy Old Men, and the uh, sequels for those last two. And um, action movies like Ricochet, Blown Away, uh, The Long Kiss Goodnight, and Volcano. Um, however, there were also other uh, entertaining side trips uh, for uh, One More Western and The Quick and the Dead. Uh, there was his first fully animated movie with Fern Gully, uh, The Last Rainforest, in 1992. Uh, there was the very popular uh, blockbuster The Bodyguard, uh, starring Whitney Houston and Kevin Costner uh, from that same year, 92. And three more films working with Robert Zemeckis, Death Becomes Her, Contact, and most notably Forrest Gump, um, all of which were commercial and critical successes for the uh, director and composer. So regarding Silvestri's score for 1994's Forrest Gump, uh, for which he was nominated for an Oscar, uh, incidentally, Silvestri said that he composed the gentle feather theme um, following his initial meeting with Robert Zemeckis about the movie uh, before there was even a feather on screen to compose to. Now, this is the opening images of the movie is this feather sort of floating through the sky as the credits roll, and eventually it lands on the shoe of the title character, uh, but it has this very gentle piano-led uh, theme. So um, Zemeckis had described this image simply to Sylvester. There wasn't any footage, um, but it helped him find a key into the movie, uh, which starred Tom Hanks in the title role um, as a simple man just making his way through life during turbulent times in the United States. Uh, surprisingly, um, Alan Silvestri mentioned in his interview for the Inside Film Music book, uh, which I had mentioned earlier, that he wrote music for Forrest Gump in a chronological fashion, um, it, it, which isn't always the norm for scoring movies. Sometimes you start in the middle and kind of work your way through both ends. But Silvestri said that he had to keep coming up with new thematic material as the story progressed. Uh, that initial feather theme uh, wasn't working in any other sequence after the opening. Um, so according to the interview, Silvestri says, and I quote, I scored Forrest Gump front to back in sequence. I got to the first piece of music that we had in the film, and I thought, here we go, and now I'll use this theme. But it didn't work, so I had to write a new theme. Then I got to the next place for music in the film, and it didn't work. I went through the whole movie looking for a way to use that theme, and I didn't even use three notes of it until the very end of the film, when this feather appears again. It seemed to be the most appropriate bookending for the film. End quote. So, his overall score for the movie ended up being more multi-thematic than he originally thought or planned, but it certainly makes for a richer musical experience, both in and out of the film. His themes are still pure Silvestri, uh, being very direct and transparent emotionally. Uh, so here's that feather theme that bookends the film, as performed in a concert suite recording uh, by the Royal Scottish National Orchestra, conducted by Joel McNeely.
While Forrest Gump racked up all sorts of acclaim, box office successes, and awards, including Best Picture, Director, and Actor at the uh, Academy Awards in 1995, Alan Silvestri, unfortunately, didn't go home with the gold for Best Original Score. Uh, he, uh, was, uh, he lost to Hans Zimmer's score for The Lion King, which was also a stellar highlight for that year. So, next, I'd like to spotlight two of his lesser-known comedy scores from the 90s, as they surprisingly showcase Alan Silvestri's propensity for rhythm in his music. Um, these two movies would be Soap Dish from 1991, directed by Michael Hoffman and starring Robert Downey Jr., Sally Field, and Whoopi Goldberg, and The Perez Family from 1995, directed by Mira Nair and starring Marissa Tomei and Alfred Molina. So specifically, Latin American rhythms are front and center in these scores. And I learned from the liner notes uh, by Daniel Schweiger in the Quartet's record CD release of the Perez Family score that Silvestri had actually toured with Cuban bands in upstate New York when he was a teen. Uh, so this was, of course, during the time where he was uh, studying drums and playing guitar. Um, but this gave him that familiarity and that comfort with weaving those rhythms um, into his music here. So for Soap Dish, which is about a fictional TV soap opera, um, there's a really fun mambo uh, piece of music that Silvestri composed for the movie, uh, which receives a great performance um, here in the end credits. So again, this is the end credits piece from Soap Dish from 1991. For the Perez Family from 1995, uh, which is a movie uh, about Cuban refugees in the United States, uh, one of whom had been in prison for two decades and hopes to locate his wife and daughter, um, Silvestri incorporates uh, not only Cuban beats into his score, uh, calling upon those earlier touring experiences I mentioned, but also um, in among his original uh, themes, there he incorporates a lovely melody uh, called Druma Negrita uh, by Cuban legend Ernesto Granet. Uh, but for an example of those Cuban rhythmic elements, here's a cue called Fence Walk from the Perez family, which kind of moves from a mid-tempo groove into one with a bit more pace. So again, this is Fence Walk from the Perez family in 1995.
In terms of Silvestri's trademark rhythmic approach to action, there is a wealth of great examples of this throughout the decade, uh, some titles of which I mentioned earlier, uh, but one I wanted to call out uh, now is his music for 1997's Volcano, directed by Mick Jackson and starring Tommy Lee Jones in his post-fugitive heyday. Um, it's a disaster movie about a volcano erupting unexpectedly below Los Angeles. As you can probably guess, there's really nothing hidden in that movie title. Um, I mention it as I find that Volcano is, is an example of how, by the late 90s, Silvestri's action music was shifting away uh, from what it had been earlier in the, the mid to late 80s and early 90s, uh, where it was driven by more short, repeating motifs, um, and it had more of a spare, sparse sort of quality to it, something that you could hear in an action cue from Predator or, or Ricochet. Um, and instead was moving towards kind of grafting his broader longline melodic tendencies on top of the driving rhythms. Um, and so uh, something that would, you know, you could also hear in another uh, action score from the late 90s uh, in Eraser. So in this standout cue from Volcano called March of the Lava, um, you get this choppy, persistent ostinato uh, in the strings providing motion uh, beneath this uh, broad, portentous sort of low brass melody um, over on top of it. Uh, so you can kind of hear how his action style was was starting to shift a bit. So this is March of the Lava from Volcano from 1997. <laughs> It's also evident 
that the texture of his music was getting thicker in these action scores, uh, busier in a lot of ways. Um, qualities that are abundant in the next highlight, The Mummy Returns from 2001. So The Mummy Returns was the sequel uh, to uh, 1999's The Mummy, um, both directed by Stephen Summers and starring Brendan Fraser and uh, Rachel Weisz. Now, uh, The Mummy was scored by uh, Jerry Goldsmith, who had also worked with Stephen Summers on Deep Rising a couple years before that, or I think maybe even just the year prior, 98. Um, now, uh, Summers had actually said that he initially wanted Silvestri for Deep Rising, and he apparently Silvestri had actually reached out, uh, and they had talked about him doing the movie, but there was a scheduling conflict. So Goldsmith came on to do Deep Rising, and then they worked together on The Mummy. But uh, Stephen Summers was able to get uh, Silvestri for The Mummy Returns, and then they worked a few times after that on Van Helsing and uh, G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra. So Summers wanted an epic score for The Mummy Returns, and what Silvestri provided uh, was something on the scale of a, a, a Miklos Rocha biblical epic score, something you would get in King of Kings, uh, something you would get in an Alfred Newman uh, biblical epic score. So it's uh, large orchestra, large choir, large percussion, um, everything is played to the hilt. Um, and uh, it works like gangbusters, and uh, Silvestri himself has said it's one of his favorite things that he's ever done, um, and he got a lot of praise for this score. So it's um, it's it's got a lot of his trademarks. It's it's highly melodic, like I said, but it's it uh, showcases the busier, sort of thicker um, action style that uh, that Silvestri was sort of gravitating towards by this point. As we move into the 2000s and examining Silvestri's projects in that decade, it's fascinating to look uh, at how the film music industry was changing, just as it always is, for some context and how that also affected the projects that he that uh, Silvestri was scoring. Um, 
there wind up being fewer comedies and action films that uh, Silvestri scored uh, as the decade progressed. Uh, the sound was changing for those genres, uh, where for comedies, you get more song-driven soundtracks and less big thematic scores. Um, whereas for action, the sound of Hans Zimmer had become dominant uh, after growing in popularity during the 90s, uh, whether composed by Zimmer himself or a protege being asked to write in a similar style. Um, that style being more atmospheric electronics, big drums, drum loops, uh, less thematic, a little more sound designy, as a lot of people talk about. So that had started to become the more dominant sound of action movies uh, in that uh, in the two starting in the two thousands. So Silvestri's thematic orchestral approach wasn't as uh, applicable for the current action trends. Um, however, this approach, uh, was still sought after for, um, other genres such as fantasy, uh, including the Night of the Museum, uh, franchise and Van Helsing, which is kind of a horror fantasy, um, and also animated movies, uh, such as Lilo and Stitch and The Croods, um, along with those directed by Robert Zemeckis, of course. So Zemeckis had, in the 2000s, moved more into motion capture movies and less live action projects. Uh, following um, Cast Away and What Lies Beneath, and both of those are pretty successful. Um, but uh, some of Zemeckis' uh, projects for the 2000s included uh, The Polar Express, Beowulf, and A Christmas Carol. Um, so with these, they still provided Silvestri a really you know broad canvas on which to write. So the 2000s have a lot of great scores by Silvestri in a very big epic mold. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's kind of interesting that... Uh, if you really like that sound of Silvestri coming off of The Mummy Returns, um, there's a lot of great scores that you can seek out in that de- in the decade of 2000s and, and beyond that uh, I think would, would satiate a fan of that uh, of, of Mummy Returns, of that type of score from Silvestri. But I wanted to focus on The Polar Express for a moment. It was actually one of those titles that I'd wanted to include in my Christmas episode and just kind of ran out of time. So, And and one listener had even noted that uh, it's, it's absence, so I apologize for that. So I wanted to play a bit of Alan Silvestri's music from The Polar Express, but this is not from the original soundtrack. This is actually from a live concert that Silvestri conducted of his music in Madrid. And it was released on album back in 2007. It's a really great recording um, and I'm not sure if it's in print, but it's from an album called Musica de Cine 2, um, and it's just Alan Silvestri's music, but there's, uh, suites on here from Forrest Gump, The Polar Express, Judge Dredd, um, Night at the Museum, Castaway, Mouse Hunt, so it's actually a really great CD, um, so seek it out if, uh, if you're interested, uh, but I, so I want to play a little bit of, uh, uh, Alan Silvestri's music from The Polar Express, uh, which is from 2004.
So that was music uh, from 2004's The Polar Express, as performed in a concert uh, held in Madrid in 2007, uh, conducted by Silvestri himself. Now, Silvestri was Oscar-nominated for the song Believe from this movie, um, and uh, it's become a favorite among uh, many audiences, although for some, uh, there's a little bit of that uncanny valley, quote-unquote, element in the motion capture that makes it difficult to engage in. Um, but, uh, so while Alan Svesher didn't score as many projects in the 2000s, um, in fact, he didn't score any projects at all in 2005 or 2008, and only one in 2007, um, he was still composing memorable and indelible music throughout the decade. Uh, I actually happen to be a big fan of his score for Robert Zemeckis' uh, Beowulf uh, adaption from 2007. It's along the same lines of the previous large-scale scores uh, for The Mummy Returns and Van Helsing um, using big orchestra, choir, percussion, and electronics uh, with the overall thicker sound that he uh, he currently employs for these uh, genre projects. Um, and it's something that is evident in cues such as this, uh, which is called Beowulf Slays the Beast. So that was part of the cue, Beowulf Slays the Beast, uh, from the movie Beowulf from 2007. Um, you know, due to the intensity of that cue, it just sort of imagined Alan Silvestri during the recording sessions uh, telling the engineers that we're going to dial this one up to 11. Uh, if I can sort of coin a phrase from this, a spinal tap. It's a pretty loud cue. Um, but uh, that was uh, 2007. So uh, Alan Silvestri sort of closed out the decade with uh, one more Night at the Museum movie and G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra in 2009. Uh, but this brings us to what could be considered the dominant trend um, for the last 10 years um, in both film and on TV, which has been the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, multiple interconnected movies and TV series based on Marvel Comics characters and superheroes. 
sometimes in solo outings, sometimes teaming up, uh, all starting with Iron Man in 2008. Um, now, Alan Silvestri was hired to score the first Captain America installment in 2011. Uh, this was called The First Avenger, uh, directed by Joe Johnston and starring Chris Evans as the title hero. Now, most of this initial entry is set during World War II, um, making this one really more of an old-fashioned period adventure movie uh, like Indiana Jones. And Silvestri wrote a fantastically rousing theme for Captain America, or uh, a.k.a. Steve Rogers, which is expressed in many guises throughout the score. It's both subdued, sometimes bombastic, um, but it's best heard as a march. Uh, It's toe-tapping and stirring in all the best ways. Uh, It's right up there with his Back to the Future main theme. Um, This is the march from Captain America, the first Avenger from 2011. was the Captain America March from Captain America the First Avenger from 2011. Now, while the powers that be at Marvel had detailed plans uh, connecting the various movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe over the uh, subsequent years, um, this unfortunately didn't extend to the music. Uh, So instead, there are, uh, for all the different entries, there are disparate scores from various composers, all fine in their own right, Uh, But there aren't as many unifying themes or musical signposts uh, like what we would know for James Bond or the Star Wars series where we have these, you know, themes that get attached to character or characters um, that kind of help the audience, uh, that can endear them to the audience as well as you go through multiple movies. This may be why there isn't as much familiarity among general audiences with music from the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Uh, Now, Silvestri's theme for Captain America, it's briefly referenced in at least one of the sequels, but it really should have been the main recurring theme for the character, honestly. Um, Similarly, there are three Iron Man movies and three Thor movies, um, all with different composers and different main themes. But as I mentioned, as great as some of these individual themes are, it makes it difficult to have a recognizable musical signpost for the character, something that carries, that's consistent throughout those movies. 
Um, what helped turn this around a little bit uh, was achieved in the first team-up movie of these Marvel superheroes um, in 2012, The Avengers, uh, directed by Joss Whedon. So Alan Silvestri was called back to provide the music, and he graced it with another memorably robust tune. This one's not as much of a perky John Phillips uh, Sousa march as the one for Captain America. Uh, it's more determined uh, and has more of a modern backbeat to it. Um, and uh, it also opens with a really excited staccato string motif that sort of sets up and then continues under the main melody, uh, which uh, comes in on horns. What's really great is that this introductory string motif can show up on its own during the score just by itself to just hint at the appearance of the superheroes, at the, of the Avengers. But the main horn melody is usually saved for the real big moments in the movie. Uh, so here's uh, Silvestri's theme for 2012's The Avengers. Unfortunately, Silvestri didn't return to score uh, the second Avengers film, uh, Age of Ultron, also directed by Joss Whedon. Um, composers Brian Tyler and Danny Elfman actually wound up sharing the composing duties on that movie. Yet, interestingly enough, there were cues from Alan Silvestri's score for the Avengers, which were tracked into the film. Um, and his melody itself, that melody that we just heard, is actually subtly referenced in Danny Elfman's new theme for the movie, uh, which is an, it's another great heroic theme. Um, but again, I'm not sure why uh, that it wasn't just Alan Silvestri's original uh, Avengers theme that was incorporated throughout the sequel. Um, but, um, it, but by the time Alan Silvestri returned to the fold uh, for last year's um, massive hit, uh, Avengers Infinity War, um, his main Avengers theme was being heard in trailers and in commercials, um, maybe not at the level of notoriety of a Star Wars main theme or a James Bond theme, but it's almost become a de facto main theme for the uh, the Avengers series, at least. Uh, so that was nice to hear, and it's used to great effect in uh, Infinity War. So I'm looking forward to hearing more of what Silvestri has to bring to uh, the next Avengers movie this year, Avengers Endgame. Now, between those two Avengers movies, 
Um, Alan Silvestri uh, scored another animated movie, uh, The Crudes, in 2013. He worked with Robert Zemeckis on two more films, uh, The Walk and Allied. Um, But he also returned to television scoring uh, in the form of a a restart of the uh, famous uh, TV series, documentary series, Cosmos. Um, This was... uh, under producer Seth MacFarlane, who really um, had a love for the the original Cosmos TV documentary series and wanted to return that to uh, television. So he uh, is a huge fan. He's a huge film music fan uh, as well, and but he's a huge fan of, of Alan Silvestri. And uh, he really wanted to bring him onto the show to provide original scoring for the episodes. Um, so it was a really great treat to have, um, Silvestri come back, score television episodes, uh, in, in, in orchestral and an electronic style. So, and a, and a very highly melodic style as well. So it was a great return to form, uh, for television scoring. Um, there was an interview done, uh, by, uh, Tim Grieving, uh, with Seth MacFarlane for Film Score Monthly Online. And, uh, they, he had asked him about, um, you know, his, his scoring, uh, basically Seth MacFarlane's uh, preferences for how to score television shows and his preference for um, big melodic orchestral scoring, which you could hear in Family Guy and um, American Dad, some of the other shows that he's done and some of the movies that he's done. Um, but uh, he had this to say, uh, Seth MacFarlane had this to say about Silvestri specifically, um, quote, He's just a guy like Henry Mancini and that he can really adapt to any style. His scores all have certain signatures that are audibly recognizable as Alan, but each one is very much specific to the movie that it's designed for. One of the things I like about his work is that he's just constantly surprised me, unquote. So again, that was an interview with Seth MacFarlane by Tim Grieving uh, in uh, Filmscore Monthly Online. So I'd like to play some of that music um, from Cosmos, uh, from the TV series Cosmos. This is from 2014. There were four volumes of music released by Entrada Records, um, if you're interested in checking out um, Sylvester's music from the show. Uh, But the track that I wanted to play is called Paris 1878, and it's a very sprightly, uh, sort of effervescent... uh, uh, Q uh, is strings, woodwinds, uh, with some brass in there, but it has uh, almost a dance-like quality to it. It's very light. Uh, but this is Paris 1878 uh, from Cosmos TV series. Thank you. 
Colin Silvestri really had a banner year in 2018, um, not just with uh, scoring the Avengers uh, Infinity War, um, but also uh, with scoring Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. So this was uh, based on a popular book and uh, sort of takes place in a uh, not-too-distant future um, where there's sort of a virtual reality world that uh, most people uh, still living in, in America sort of get involved in. And um, it's basically a virtual reality world built on these um, game avatars and a lot of like uh, Easter eggs and sort of references to uh, 70s and 80s movie and TV shows. And a lot of these clues that, 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 uh, that have to be sort of uncovered in the movie are references to these 70s and 80s um, movies and TV shows. So when it came to the music, uh, if you're going to have a score for a Steven Spielberg film, most of the time, you're going to assume it's John Williams. But there have been some scheduling conflicts, which has prevented them from working together a couple times. And um, before this, uh, recently on Bridge of Spies, uh, uh, Thomas Newman actually came on to score uh, that film for Steven Spielberg. So the same thing happened with Ready Player One, uh, and there was a scheduling conflict, and John Williams was unavailable to actually do the music. But if you're going to do a, a movie uh, that's going to ha be heavily steeped in 80s nostalgia, <laughs> 80s pop culture nostalgia, there's really only two modern-day composers that are still around that could do it. It would basically be either John Williams or Alan Silvestri. So I think Spielberg you know, made an awesome choice to have Alan Silvestri score this film. And he responded uh, with a score that's rich, uh, it's richly melodic, it's, it's fully orchestral, and um, it definitely plays to his strengths. Um, it's active, it's energetic, um, and it has a really charming main theme. Um, it, uh, it's, it's bright, uh, it's, but it's, it's really sort of optimistic. Uh, so I want to play some of uh, Silvestri's main theme from Ready Player One. A highlight of Ready Player One, as I mentioned earlier, is all the uh, 1980s pop culture references and Easter eggs. And one of these happens to be the DeLorean time-traveling machine from Back to the Future being driven by one of the characters in the movie. So it actually allowed Alan Silvestri the opportunity to reference his own score for Back to the Future in the score for Ready Player One. So just goes to show you that if you compose for film and TV long enough in this industry, then you might wind up referencing yourself 30 years later. Uh, it's an observation I think I also made in my Elmer Bernstein episode last year, talking about some of his uh, dramatic and uh, Western uh, scores. 
Following uh, in Avengers Infinity War and Ready Player One, Alan Silvestri closed out 2018 with Welcome to Morrowind, uh, his most recent collaboration with director Robert Zemeckis, uh, starring Steve Carell, and based on a true life experience. Uh, so with close to 20 film and TV projects together from Romance in the Stone up until Welcome to Morrowind, um, this composer-director partnership has really remained the through line in Silvestri's career. Now, what's also been a through line, touching on what Seth MacFarlane noted in his interview that I quoted earlier, is Silvestri's consistent style and approach to so many diverse movies in pretty much every genre. He effortlessly tailors his sound to each project, uh, whether it's orchestral or electronic, traditional or contemporary. Yet the qualities of his music that I noted at the top of the episode are ever-present. There's that sense of melody um, and the emotionally direct quality um, from the disco-centric scores for Chips to the orchestral sweep of the Avengers. Uh, Silvestri's music still wears its heart on its sleeve um, in the best, most endearing fashion, um, and it's always appreciated in every score. I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was as fun for you as it was for me to take a deep dive into Alan Silvestri's music, listening for what makes it unique and memorable. Music in this episode was, of course, composed by Alan Silvestri, and from the following films or TV shows, uh, Back to the Future 2, Chips, Romancing the Stone, Fandango, Back to the Future, The Delta Force, Outrageous Fortune, Predator, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Abyss, Back to the Future 3, Forrest Gump, Soap Dish, The Perez Family, Volcano, The Mummy Returns, The Polar Express, Beowulf, Captain America the First Avenger, The Avengers, and Ready Player One. If you'd like to send any comments or questions, uh, you can email the show at podcast at gmail.com. Find the blog at ascortosettle.blogspot.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash ascortosettle, and on Twitter at score2settlepod. That's score, the number two, settle pod. If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. And for any fans of Spotify, the podcast is now available on that platform as well. Thanks again for everyone for listening, and of course, Happy New Year to everyone. Bye.